This evening we're going to consider the messenger of the covenant. The messenger of the covenant. Our passage is Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through to chapter 3 and verse 6. Up until now, as we've been looking at the book of Malachi, uh, we've considered various things such as the Lord of hosts reproving Israel for their rebellion. For example, the priests, they offered um, contemptible sacrifices to God. Sacrifices that were lame, blind, sick. Also, they failed in their duty to proclaim the law to the people, had they proclaimed that law, the, uh, the whole idea of law is to induce repentance. So you kind of figure why it is that not just the priests, but everyone was in rebellion against God. More broadly, the men of Israel, including the priests, were leaving their wives and marrying the daughter of a strange God. We saw that last week, didn't we? When we considered marriage and divorce. Today we shall consider the promise of the Lord of hosts to send the messenger of the covenant to purify his people and to establish righteous worship. Look first of all to chapter 2 and verse 17. The messenger of the Lord, Malachi, he says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? The more you appreciate just how holy God is, And how sinful we are, that contrast there, the holiness of the Lord and our sinfulness, the more you'll be amazed that God saves any of their, any any of his creatures at all from their sins. And you'll be amazed that God promises anyone a heavenly inheritance. But he does precisely that. And that is because of his unconditional love. It would have to be an unconditional love, wouldn't it? And his mercy in that he does not give his chosen people, his his elect, the everlasting punishment that they and everyone else in this world so richly deserve. The Lord is gracious in that he forgives sinners and he gives them everlasting life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, he suffers long with his rebellious creatures. I don't suffer long with people. This is something that is a prayer point of mine, that I would be more patient, more long-suffering. But the Lord, he is very patient. He is very long-suffering. The Lord proclaimed to Moses all of the... These attributes that I've just mentioned, including his long-suffering, about 1,000 
100 years before Malachi's time and the Lord said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Do you remember that? Maybe you've seen that in um, in Exodus when Moses was in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passed by him and declared these things to him. Even so, the Lord has a cut-off point when he says, enough is enough and he will no longer strive with man even though the Lord has declared himself to be long-suffering. That is precisely what happened in Noah's time when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's not just the... I always have to read that again. The wickedness of man was great in the earth And it's not just that the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Thoughts are broken down into every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of evil. A lot of evil thinking going on. We all know what happened next. The whole earth was flooded and everyone perished apart from the eight people, including Noah, who were shut into the ark by God. We are told very clearly in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16 that they went in, went in male and female of all flesh as God commanded him, commanded Noah, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in, into the ark. It's reasonable to say that if you're a Christian, the Lord has shut you into his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is your ark. We have reached a time in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, where God has had enough. Or as Malachi said to the people, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Can you imagine that? Wearying the Lord's the Lord with your words. At that point, it would have been good for Israel had everyone, including the priests, fallen prostrate before the Lord and cried out to Him for mercy, with broken and contrite hearts. But instead of that, and true to form, they protested, saying, and "Look again, and look again at verse seventeen." There, they said. In what way have we wearied him? You need not think that they asked that question in sincerity. Those words proceeded from proud, arrogant and evil hearts that thought themselves to be beyond reproach. They wearied the Lord by saying, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord and his delight is in them. Who were they talking about there? Instead of showing repentance towards the Lord, who had been a father to them, they protested and they accused God of what they perceived through their evil eyes to be his special favour towards the Gentile nations. 
His delight is in them, the heathen. And at the end of verse 17, by saying, where is the God of judgment? They were making a plea for divine justice. Not against them, of course, but against the other nations. To say that Israel's heart was hardened by sin and that they were blinded by their wickedness and their self-righteousness would be an understatement. Don't see anything good in what they said there in verse 17. It's not for nothing that we are told, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Throughout their history, the Lord had lovingly pleaded with Israel to repent. For example, about 200 years before Malachi, the Lord said to his prophet Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Nevertheless, they did not heed the words of the prophets. Instead, they killed them. They killed those who were sent to them. The prophets of God. Having looked at Israel's self-righteous plea for divine justice against the Gentile nations, we shall now look at the Lord's response in chapter 3. First of all, we can see in verse 1, that the Lord would send not one, but two messengers, and the announcement concerning each of those two envoys is preceded by the word, Behold. You have that word, Behold, twice in verse 1, before the announcement of a messenger. That tells us that we really need to sit up, we really need to pay attention, and we really need to hold on to what is being announced in verse 1 about the two messengers who would be sent by the Lord of hosts. Let's have a look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom he seeks shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, He shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. With regards to the first messenger, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That reminds me, very recently, I walked over the new Peel Harbour Bridge with my dog Teddy, and I was a little surprised... A little bit surprised to see that already after just a short while of building that bridge, they were doing a paint job on it, a lick of paint here and there, and I couldn't really understand why it needed any paint. It's a new bridge. But then I found out why a week later. The bridge was officially opened by the Princess Royal. Then it made sense to me why they went around with a paintbrush, putting a lick of paint here and there. 
And then there was that time years ago during my stint in the army when the brown patches on the sports field were spray painted green before a, a visit from Her Majesty the Queen. I don't think I'm giving away any official secrets there. Also, you can be certain that potholes will be filled in on any road that the Queen is due to be driven along. I'd love it if the Queen paid a visit to Peel. We might get our roads sorted out. What can be seen in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 is notice being given by the Lord that he would send his messenger to prepare the way before him. In other words, before he comes. We are left in no doubt whatsoever that the first messenger referred to in verse 1 there was John the Baptist. And he prepared the way for the Lord about 400 years after those words were spoken by Malachi. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 11, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the people specifically about John the Baptist confirmed that he was the first messenger that we read of in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 verses 9 and 10 and as I'm reading this you keep on looking at chapter 3 and verse 1 there of Malachi. This is what Jesus said. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, a more than a prophet. For this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer, could he? Jesus made it very clear that the first messenger spoken of here in our passage is John the Baptist. As for the second messenger who was to come, the one who is described as the messenger of the covenant, he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 can be read as follows. I'm going to read it again, but with a few changes. Behold, I, in other words, the Lord of hosts, will send John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even me, the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, I shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. What I want you to get into your heads, and keep in your heads, is that Jesus is the Lord of hosts who gave this message to Malachi to give to the people. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And he did that 400 years before he was made flesh. Jesus gave that message to Malachi 400 years before being born of a virgin in Bethlehem. When you read the words of Verse 1, alongside the fulfilment in the New Testament, you should be left in no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, the second messenger in that verse, the messenger of the covenant, 
but also he is the Lord of hosts who gave this message to Malachi in the first place. He is Jehovah God. Similar declarations of the divinity of Jesus can be found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Something very similar. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 where the prophet Isaiah had a heavenly vision and he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This vision of Isaiah the prophet was about 700 years before Jesus came into the world. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then when we come to the New Testament, to John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41, the Apostle John confirmed that it was Jesus in that heavenly vision who was high and lifted up as the Lord of hosts with the train of his robe filling the temple. Never forget who Jesus is and be amazed that the Lord of hosts came into the world, was made flesh. He came as a servant And he was nailed to a cross, having fulfilled the law perfectly. Whose law? His own law. He made himself subject to his law. He became obedient even unto the death of the cross. The Lord of hosts was lifted up to die on a cross as he paid the penalty for sin for all who trust in him. Coming back to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. After Malachi, there would be no prophets for 400 years. There would be silence from heaven for 400 years until finally John the Baptist would come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, he would not be painting the grass green or filling in potholes in Jerusalem. John the Baptist would prepare the way by exposing the people's sins and by calling on them to repent. One thing is for sure, he most certainly was not like the modern day ear ticklers and motivational speakers who occupy church pulpits. The way that John conducted his ministry when when multitudes came to be baptised by him after such a long time without having a prophet is given in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 to 17. In that passage, which I'm going to read in a short while, we can see also John was indeed the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to just uh, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Don't have to go far for that, do we? The very next book. This is John's ministry here, taking it from verse 7. A, a day in the life of John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. It's real motivational speaking there, isn't it? I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, speaking of the messenger of the covenant whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. This is speaking of Jesus now. And he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner or into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. Wow, that is the ministry of John the Baptist there, preaching a message of repentance, and such was his baptism, a baptism of repentance. Very strong words from John the Baptist. Coming back to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 again, we can see that Jesus is referred to as the messenger of the covenant. When you think of the Son of God with respect to God's dealings with mankind, he has the following positions of authority. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. Verse 1 refers primarily to Jesus as the prophet. But not like all the other prophets, not like John the Baptist or Ezekiel or Isaiah. Jesus was different. Not only did Jesus bring the message from God, he was the message from God. For example, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he walked with two very miserable disciples who at first didn't realise that it was him that they were talking with. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead, crucified and dead. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the prophecy concerning himself. So you see Jesus, he is the prophet and he is the prophecy, he's everything. 
And indeed, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in times past, God spoke in various ways um, by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What is the message that the messenger of the covenant brought from heaven 2,000 years ago which is about himself. What is that message? What is the... We all need to understand this. The message that... uh, It was the message of all the prophets before him and Jesus himself when he came as the messenger of the covenant. What was the message? Well, we could look at Luke chapter 24... It's not the only place, but we could look at Luke 24, verse 46 to 47, to the message that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his apostles to be preached to the Jews and to the Gentile nations after his ascension to heavenly glory. This is the message that Jesus gave to his apostles. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is the message from the messenger of the covenant. We shall now look briefly very briefly at Malachi chapter 3 verses 2 to verse 6. Okay, let me just read them now. But who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap or a launderer's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you in judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear me not, saith the Lord of hosts. Presumably these are all things that Israel was guilty of. For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. What has been happening ever since the coming of the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is that there has been a refining process. We see that in these verses here, a refining process, just like silver being refined in a furnace with the layers of dross being scraped away until finally the refiner sees his own face in that pure silver. Or just like a fuller's soap that washes away all the filthy stains. 
in a garment. God has been purifying and washing all who have shown repentance towards him and faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Such people are said to have clean hands and a pure heart, having been washed and purified and made holy by the blood of Jesus. That is their position before God at the time of conversion, the time of being born again, the time of becoming Christians. Accepted in the Beloved. And then day by day, God continues to refine them, to wash them, to cleanse them, to purify them, to shape them into the image of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his word, which is truth. As you read the scriptures or you hear the scriptures being expounded, there is that refining process going on, that washing, that purging away of sin. And also that process continues through various other things, various trials and tribulations in order to conform his people to the image of his dear son who is himself the image, the express image of the invisible God. These people, Christians, look forward to their prophet, priest and king coming again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and in the meantime, as priests of the Most High God, they are zealous of good works. As it is written, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself. This is an ongoing purification. Purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In verse 5, there is that list of sins that the Jews of old were no, guilt, no doubt guilty of. And similarly, there are various lists of sins that you can find in the New Testament that we are all guilty of. The Lord of hosts, the messenger of the covenant, came into the world to save people from their sins. All who receive him, all who believe in his name, that includes Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus achieved that by living a life of perfect obedience on their behalf and laying down his life as an atonement for sin. In Luke chapter 18, the messenger of the covenant spoke about two men, a very familiar passage Luke chapter 18, the two men, one was a religious Jew, a Pharisee, and also he, there was the tax collector. Both were standing in the temple court in Jerusalem. The Pharisee, I, I bring this one to you because the Pharisee reminds me of the Israel of old in the time of Malachi, pointing the finger at the heathen nations in their self-righteous indignation. Just like the um, the Pharisee in the temple. He stood proud. 
He boasted about how good he was and he compared himself favourably with others, including the tax collector. As for the tax collector, he stood at a distance from the sanctuary and filled with contrition, he beat his chest in self-loathing and repentance towards God. In stark contrast to the Pharisee, he called himself a sinner, as though he was the only sinner in the whole world when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Can you imagine those Jews of old in the time of Malachi saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? The tax collector was praying for God to be propitiated or appeased in regard to him. And there is only one way that that can ever happen. There is only one way that God can be appeased. As it is written in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. By the grace of God, the best thing that I have ever done is cast myself upon the mercy of God as a helpless and miserable sinner. And now, with thanksgiving in my heart, I can sing, Once I was lost in sin's degradation, Jesus came down to bring me salvation, lifted me up from sorrow and shame, now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. No doubt that is the testimony of all in here who, instead of continuing to compare themselves favourably with others, have come before the throne of God's grace saying, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done evil in your sight. Don't be like those sinfully stubborn Jews of old who self-righteously pointed their fingers at everyone else. If you have not already done so, now is the time to repent And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.